welcome, gang, to the second episode of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with uh, yours truly, Ryan Corey. Uh, tonight I'm chatting with Alberta rider Greg Ventigum. Uh, Greg was a recent an- attendee of the Canmore Bike Sam- Summit that we held back in October. Um, and it was during our Saturday pizza dinner, um, kind of opened the floor to a couple of folks to share some bike packing stories. And we heard from uh, Rod, who talked about uh, racing the Arizona Trail. And uh, Greg shared a story of cycling up to Tuktiuktuk. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't catch all of it because, uh, you know, as is the case when you're organizing stuff, you're kind of all over the place. But. I remember there was uh, some stories of uh, frozen KFC and freezing temperatures and uh, motivation to support MS. And uh, yeah, tonight we're going to get more uh, into that story. And uh, like I said to Greg, we don't have a particular agenda. We're just telling stories and and having a chat and uh, still finding our way as to uh, where to go with this podcast. But uh, thanks for coming on, Greg, and uh, looking forward to getting into it here. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me, and I love telling stories. I've got a few of them. <laughs> cool. The, uh, the epic Arctic adventure there was just over a year ago now was uh, is one of them, and I think a few of the folks at the uh, at the summit were impressed with my diet because um, it was quite apparent during that uh, session or those sessions over two days that um, there's some pretty serious bikers there, and a lot of them pay a lot of attention to uh, not just exercise and but also diet and and uh, and performance and <laughs> you know I, I cycled a uh, thousand kilometers in the winter from Dawson City to Tuktiaktuk and the last uh, couple hundred kilometers were on the uh, ice road along the Mackenzie Delta and actually rode on the Arctic Ocean for a while and my diet <laughs> was not uh, one that was conducive to being a performance athlete but uh, at one point I was eating Kentucky Fried Chicken for four days straight so <laughs> but it worked four days straight that's that's the first as far as stories that I've heard but it, it makes total sense in the bikepacking world um, maybe let's uh, let's take a step back for a second um, so t- you know tell us a little bit of who you are where you're from you know what's what's the day job well, I'm a fire chief by day and night, uh, as the case is, because I'm basically on call 24 hours a day, most of my life. Uh, born and raised in Calgary, moved to Jasper to, actually didn't move to Jasper. I, I took a Greyhound bus to Jasper to go skiing for a winter prior to attending Mount Royal College in Calgary and fell in love with Jasper and never left. Um, so yeah, I've been in Jasper for over 30 years. Um, over a long chain of events, became the fire chief 17 years ago. Um, again, over a long chain of events, I rediscovered my love for cycling. I, I cycled a, a ton when I was younger. Uh, did bike packing back as early as when I was 15 years old, but raised a family of two amazing kids. I went through a divorce and a few other things, and um, through it all, I, I ended up... Uh, getting back into not only biking, competitive biking, and also bikepacking. And that's what led me to my trip to uh, Taktiaktak. And it all uh, stems back to about 10 years ago where I met a fellow that had multiple sclerosis. And he um, he had a lot of impact on my life at the time. He was um, very, very sick. And uh, he had still kept an amazingly positive attitude. 
And I was going through, actually at the time, I was going through my, uh, my you know, petty little divorce issues. And I ended up uh, chatting with this fellow for a couple of days on and off. And it was so impressive how he kept such a positive outlook. And I look back at it and I thought, you know, here I am pretty healthy and capable. And here's a fellow that really does not have a very bright future. And he's telling me how to, <laughs> you know, how to how to, you know, be positive and all these things. So I kind of took what he said to heart and he inspired me. Um, and I started riding my bike again 10 years ago, really. It was, I mean, seriously riding it. And then, um, unfortunately, a year later, he passed away. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. So I made a promise to his daughter that I was going to, I was going to do something kind of over the top for MS, trying to do something a little different. So that's when I started doing um, various bike rides and, and fundraising. And, you know, over that time, I, I, I'm just under $400,000 in funds raised for the uh, Alberta Northwest Territories chapter of MS to date. And over that time, I've done a number of um, not just long distance bikepacking trips, but a lot of um, MS bike tours. And the majority of the bike tours I do, I do on a fat bike you know, no, I don't do it on a skinny bike like the rest of the competitors. And the, the analogy I've used over the years is that me riding a fat bike in a skinny bike event is like someone trying to struggle through life with MS. Hmm. And so it kind of connects me with those folks. Gotcha. And uh, so was the Tukti Arctic Adventure, was that your longest uh, to date uh, beforehand? No, no, definitely wasn't the longest. Um I, I rode off from Wickenburg, Arizona to Jasper a few years ago. Um, that was just about 3,000 kilometers, I think, maybe just under. I've done a trip. Uh, I do, and I'll back up here a bit, Ryan, but I tagged my, uh, a couple of years ago, I decided to tag my MS uh, fundraising. I started a website and whatnot, uh, www.endms93.com, and I tagged all my rides as end-to-end to end MS. And the reason I did that is I first chose um, two highways in Jasper, where I live. There's um, there's two highways. There's Highway 93, which goes uh, north to south or south to north, and there's Highway 16, which is a Trans-Canada Highway that goes uh, west to east or east to west. So my first trip on that end-to-end uh, uh, tagline was Wickenburg, Arizona to Jasper, Alberta. And Wickenburg is the furthest south point of Highway 93, and Jasper is the furthest north. So between those two points is basically Route 93. And then uh, Highway 16 originates, or I'm not sure where it originates, but it, one end of it is uh, Masset Heidi Gua, which is uh, formerly the Queen Charlotte Islands. And the other one is uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And in fact, it's the uh, Portage of Maine intersection, um, basically right in the center of downtown. So those are the first two rides I did on the end-to-end uh, tagline. And then I ran out of Jasper Highways. <laughs> and uh, I was speaking at a conference a few years ago, and I, I, someone said, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I don't know. You tell me. So at, at the end of it, I'm sitting down, and all these people started coming up and giving me ideas. And there were some pretty outrageous ideas. And I, I, I've got a full-time job, so I can't, I can't uh, basically go anywhere for two or three months. And some of those ideas were like something like you've done where you go from Alaska down to Argentina 
you know, I just couldn't take the time to do that. So uh, one thing that intrigued me was a fellow said, ride the Dempster Highway in the winter on your fat bike. And he just wrote it on a piece of paper and left it on the table. And my sister picked it up and gave it to me when I was going back to her place in Calgary. And I looked and I said, you know what? I'm going to look into this. And so that ended up being my third end-to-end bike ride. And I, what I decided to do was the Dempster Highway from Dawson City to Inuvik on my fat bike in the winter. But um, the other thing that intrigued me about that ride was the there's another addition to that. If you go from Inuvik to Tuktoyaktuk, it's another, I, I'm not exactly sure, I think it's roughly 200 kilometers, but it, there's no road. But in the winter, there's an ice road. And that's what really piqued my interest. And I thought, you know what? This is something I got to do, but I got to do that last stretch to Tuktoyaktuk. And then I further found out that they're actually building a road right now. And it's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be done next year. So I thought, you know, I'll be one of the last people to actually go on the on the ice road and potentially one of the last people to do it on a bicycle. So that's that's where the Dempster came from. Interesting. Yeah, I briefly researched uh, Dempster a little bit when I was looking for, uh, you know, my route from Alaska to, to Argentina. And Dempster comes up as a pretty, uh, I guess, well-traveled, but still a pretty remote route. And it's interesting. I was curious to know where your motivations for going that way were, because normal when I think of long distance tours these days, usually I'm thinking anywhere south. I'll go, I'll go to the end of the earth as long as it's somewhere somewhere warm. You don't hear very often of people making the goal to 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 go north, and especially uh, especially where you went. So I, I guess the the obvious next question is um, when you were planning that, um, you know, what kind of resources were available as far as um you know understanding what what was along the route for restock um you know camping and and that sort of thing uh well one of the things that intrigued me about the dampster was that i didn't know anything about it and i talked to a few people and nobody knew anything about it uh, i started to do the research like you said i i you know spent a lot of time on the internet there was a lot of information about um summer travel for cyclists particularly i couldn't find very many people that had cycled the dempster in the winter i did actually find a few there was one really cool old uh it's on youtube it's it's a really cool old uh footage of a couple of guys on mountain bikes you know like back in i think it would have been the 80s early 80s and they were basically bike packing the dempster without a clue it was kind of it's kind of i really enjoyed that and um i'm not even sure if they made it and then there's a couple of others where, like, um, you know, another fellow that did it and, and got frostbite and, and had to pack it in halfway. And another fellow that started in Tuktoyaktuk, he was actually going from our, he was going down to South America. And he ended up um, with some really weird warm weather in the middle of uh, March and ended up mud bogged and bro- broke his back derailleur and did a whole bunch of damage to his spokes and ended up hitchhiking. So I found more failures than I did successes, but I, I've got some connections. My brother lives, one of my brothers, I've got a few, but he lives in Yellowknife. He was a mayor there for quite a few years. He, he connected me with some people in Tuktoyaktuk and Inuvik. I have another brother who's with Parks Canada. He connected me with people with Parks Canada. 
Um, so through those networks, and I've got a friend who's a trapper. He connected me with the Trappers Network. Um, through that, I, I connected with people and just asked questions. It was all done, you know, emails and, and on on the internet. And I asked a million questions. I did a ton of research on road conditions and weather conditions. I've done a lot of winter camping throughout my life, so um, that part of it wasn't too foreign to me. But I did go out and, and purchase some new gear, and I did go out and test it. I did a ride from Fort McMurray up to uh, Fort Chip um, just to, in January before that trip just to try out a few things. And But, yeah, the winter was its a, definitely a challenge. Um, I knew that uh, there could be some serious, serious danger involved. And I, for that reason, I, I, I purchased a... Um, in reach device, which in hindsight didn't work very well because of the satellite coverage there. It um, was really spotty. But at the kind of the last hour, a friend of my nephew's in Whitehorse gave me his satellite phone. And that was kind of my ace in the hole as far as safety goes. But I, you know, I said it before that a lot of the, it's, it's, I'm still on a highway, even though it's a gravel road and it's, it's still a highway. And there wasn't a lot of traffic, particularly when it was closed, which was often but the people along the road were extremely um, a lot of people stopped and they, they didn't need to but they'd stop and just say you know are you okay do you need something so really i wasn't that far out of my comfort zone because there was normally people around other than there was a few days here and there where i didn't see anybody but it was because the road was closed gotcha and how did you get up to uh, the start at dawson there i um uh, I flew from Edmonton up to uh, Whitehorse, and like I said, I have a nephew that lives in Whitehorse. The original plan was he was going to drive me from Whitehorse to Dawson, and um, it didn't work out. When I got there, there was stuff happening. He got busy, so um, I, I basically ended up flying from Whitehorse to Dawson City, which is you know it's just an hour and a half flight, and I made connection with the fire chief in. Uh, in Dawson City. So when I got there, I prearranged to stay at the fire hall and to, to do all my prep work there. Unfortunately, when I got there, he was deathly ill with a flu. So actually, actually it was the mayor of Dawson City that, that met me and uh, took me to the fire hall and, you know, set me up. And the next morning I set off. So um, the funny thing with this trip was it, there was, it was a lot of extreme weather, but the day I left, it was the most beautiful day they'd had all winter. And um, when I hit the, the Dempster Highway, which is like 60 kilometers south of um, Dawson City, the temperature was like 17 degrees. It was I was like, my God, I, I had all my layers off and had stuff bungeed to my packs because I didn't have enough room for the extra clothes. It was crazy. So the the KFC was this from uh, Dawson, or where, where does the KFC come into the story? Well, that comes in um, the first, like I said, the first couple of days were, or first day for sure was pretty mild. Second day, the temperature started plummeting, and it started getting really cold. Um, my nephew in Whitehorse, Graham, um, I had stayed at his house a couple of nights, and he'd helped me get some gear together. He we had some trouble getting my Delorum, my device working. So we went to a local radio shop and, and they tried to help me out with that. And he helped me and went to the bike shop. Of course, I had to buy a bunch of things from them to support the local economy. And uh, when I left uh, 
Whitehorse, he told me that he had a friend that is a ice road trucker who does that route on a regular basis. And his name was Marcel, I believe. And he says, you know, I'm going to give him something, you know, if he sees you or whatever. And I said, well, he said, what, what, do, you, what do you think you'd need? And I said, well, really, what I'm going to need is water. Because water was my biggest challenge. And he said, well, what else? And I said, well, I'd love an IPA, just joking, and some Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now <laughs> <laughs> that last two was a bit of a joke, but so, anyways, I I was laid up in a place called Eagle Plains, which is kind of the halfway to Anubik, and it's a it's a gas station, motel kind of restaurant place, and uh, the road that's where the road closure is, and when there is one in the winter, and so the road was closed, and I was laid up there for two nights, and um, the second day. When I was getting ready to leave again, uh, this fellow pulls in with a big semi truck and it's Marcel. And he finds me because I'm the only guy in the restaurant with spandex on. <laughs> Actually, I was wearing winter spandex, so I did look out of place. But, anyways, um, he said, You must be Graham's uncle. And I said, Yeah, you must be Marcel. And he says, Yeah, I got something for you. Come out to the truck. So I get out there and he gives me a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And a six pack of IPA, <laughs> and it's like twenty blow up, right? So I, I bungee corded the bucket of chicken on the front pack, and then I looked at the IPA and I said, you know what? I said I can't take this. So I took one off the string and I gave him the rest. And I said, you know what? If you see me on the road in the next few days, throw me one, you know, you know, or stop and give me one or whatever. But I said I can't take them because they're gonna freeze. So I stuffed one in my in my pocket. And as it happened, uh, when I left off that day, I didn't get very far, and the, and the weather changed again. And I got to the, there's a crossing point where the, the highway crosses the Arctic Circle, and it was getting extremely windy. Some some uh, travelers had stopped me prior to that and told me I shouldn't be going any further to turn around. Of course, I didn't listen. And I got to there, and um, I couldn't go any further. There was drifts, and it was extremely dangerous. But fortunately, there was an old broken-down uh, tractor-trailer. It, was, it wasn't old. It was a broken-down tractor-trailer truck that was left at the pull-off. And one of the truckers at the Eagle Plains had told me that uh, it could be there if it hadn't been towed away and told me where the keys should be because I guess they all stashed their keys on the left-hand saddle tank, the, the fuel tank. And sure enough, I, I tried to go, I couldn't go. So I went back to this truck and um, I found the keys and got into it, which protected me from the wind. But long story short, I actually ended up spending two nights in that truck because of the weather. And the winds were over 100 kilometers an hour in, at the night. And um, so I ended up eating this frozen Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> and it was a big bucket. So, I mean, I, I didn't eat a lot of it. And I had water, but the water froze. And, I had, you know, you know, um, like lots of chocolate bars and, and that kind of stuff. But um, so finally, when I did get moving forward again, I had the bucket strapped on the bungee cord again. And away I went. And like I said, at the summit, uh, it lasted me all the way to uh, past Anubik before I ate the last piece of chicken. And, and the beauty of Kentucky Fried Chicken when you're winter biking is it, it freezes solid and um, I'm sure it's full of calories and everything else, but um, it's actually tastes really good when it's four days old and frozen. 
<laughs> I hate Kentucky Fried Chicken when it's fresh. So <laughs> interesting. So give give us like a, a lay of the land. Uh, you know, I, I can I can picture what that part of the world looks like. Um, but you know, for the, for those that haven't been up to Alaska and the northern pieces of Canada, you know what. What's the terrain like? Is it is it flat? Is it hilly? Um, you know, how cold is it? Why are why are people traveling that road to begin with? It's um, the road was built. Um, I think the the government built the road back in the early '60s, and their excuse was they were connecting the um, the remote um, settlements because they had no roads. Well, I think the people that lived in those settlements really didn't want roads, but that's just my opinion. But there was um, some oil discoveries around Inuvik, I think, is what really pushed the road. But that's, again, I don't know the, the real fact. But anyways, the road was built, and it's basically a gravel road. And a lot of the route um, is, well, it's very remote, uh, but a lot of the route is, is on permafrost. And, and in order to build the road, they had to build like a three-meter gravel um, insulating buffer to insulate the permafrost so it doesn't melt. So the road is it's elevated, and it's built on top of permafrost in, in a lot of the places. And um, it's, it's a highway, and they call it a highway, and it's actually quite smooth, even though it's gravel. But the gravel is, I don't know, it almost looks like fine lava rock. It's dark and very sharp. And I've heard stories of people cycling in the summer where they've had multiple flats. Um, but in the winter, it's got ice on it, too, and snow. So it was actually a fairly decent ride on a fat bike. I, I started off with fairly low pressure, and I ended up raising the pressure just because um, it, it moved quite a bit better. But... Uh, when it snows, it snows very heavily, and they've got quite a few different um, locations where they have highway crews with graders and plows, and they don't, they can't always keep up. So there's sections where they close the road until they, the crews can keep it up. But there's a variety of terrain. There's a lot of windy sections, like extremely windy sections. Like at one point. Um, I remember thinking, like, whoever surveyed this road, they must have been either totally drunk or blind because, like, the road, it was like a serpentine. It, it, and I really don't know why because there was places where they could have gone straight where they didn't. But it's a major highway for just not just the people that live in, uh, like, um, um, Inuvik and Tatiatak or all the outlying settlements, but... It's the connection for um, supplying those areas. And the thing that's interesting is there's a lot of tractor-trailer traffic, semi-trucks, and they're hauling not just the food and the, and the supplies for the daily living, but they're supplying food, particularly to Tatiaktuk, uh, for the summer because that's the only time the ice ride was open. So there's a huge influx of uh, semi-truck traffic going to Tatiaktuk in the winter because they're utilizing the ice road. And a lot of the truckers I met when I was holed up at the Eagle Plains were guys that were hauling out to Tatiaktuk. Gosh, and you, um, you said the route is, uh, was it a thousand kilometers? It's, yeah, it's, I think it's about a thousand from Dawson to um, Tatiaktuk, yeah. And how long did you budget for that? Well, I ended up um, being slower than I 
thought I would be. I'd done a previous winter ride, the one across Highway 16. Uh, I went from Massahatigua to Winnipeg. And I was averaging uh, between 90 and 110 kilometers a day. So this one I thought, well, I'm going to try and average about 80 kilometers a day. To be honest, I think I might have averaged 50. Um, and, and a lot of the reason was is the extreme cold temperatures for a while and also the deep snow and the, the drifts. So I, I had some pretty short days, um, which is kind of a, I don't know, I, I didn't enjoy that part of it because I like to be moving on the bike. And when I set up camp, if I set up early, I like to enjoy camp. But there was days where I wasn't enjoying my four hours on the bike because it was too windy, cold and snowy. And then I'd try and set up camp and try and be comfortable. And that wasn't comfortable either. So, But again, there was also those bluebird days with, um, you know, hard packed road where it was just absolutely gorgeous. So I had a mix of everything. And then, uh, when, you know, once you got out there and you're in the mix, you know, how did how did it live up to your expectations? And, you know, was there kind of any particular challenges that you didn't expect? Um. I think that thing that I didn't really expect, I expected cold temperatures, but I didn't expect the wind. There was a one night in particular where I was trying to set up my tent. It was dark, so I, I pedaled into the evening. And um, it was so windy, I, I really had a, a difficult time getting the tent set up. And I almost lost the fly. And the only thing that saved me was that the little hook on the fly snagged on a, on a strap on my jacket. Because I did actually lose control of it. And it somehow... It was saved by hooking onto my jacket, or it would have been probably blown to, I don't know where. But uh, so the wind was the thing that uh, that I didn't really expect. And the night I spent, one night I spent in the semi truck. I think I, I told the story in Canmore. The wind was blowing so hard that the tractor trailer that I was sleeping in was blowing, was moving back and forth, and I, it woke me up. And I actually thought it was moving because it was violent me being shooken back and forth. And this is like a Peterbilt truck, but the wind was hitting it broadside and the thing was just rocking. Uh, you know, it was, it was actually scary. Hmm. So you took a little longer than you expected and, and you, you get all the way to, uh, talk to Yacht Tuck. Like what's, what's kind of waiting for you at the end? <laughs> um, well, I, I had a, of a welcome in Inuvik because I had a friend of a friend who offered to put me up so I actually got a place to stay in Inuvik and and they invited a bunch of their friends over and we had a big meal and a bit of a celebration um, when I rolled into Tuktiak Tuk it was a bit anticlimactic <laughs> when you roll off the ice road uh, into Tuk there's no sign that says welcome to Tuk because the sign is at the airport which I didn't realize so obviously I knew I was in Taktiyatak because I was at the end of the road and I was in a village. But um, I rode around town for about 15, 20 minutes on my bike with my little GoPro camera filming different things. And it was kind of weird because there wasn't a lot of people around and the ones that were around didn't really pay any attention to me. <laughs> and I thought, geez, I just rode all the way here. You think someone would stop and say, what are you doing? But So then I, I finally did ask somebody, I said, you know, is there a, a sign that indicates Taktiyatak? And they said, oh, you've got to go to the airport. So I went out to the airport and did some selfies with the welcome to Taktiyatak sign. But I ended up being put up at the RCMP detachment. Um, 
which was wonderful. Um, the constable that put me up cooked me a big steak dinner, and the next day I got a ride back to Inuvik on a work truck with one of the crews that was building the highway, and then I went back to the same house I had stayed at two nights before. And uh, so, so you get back to uh, Jasper. Are there any kind of takeaway takeaway lessons from that uh, particular particular trip that you'd want to share? Uh, well, I, I did it as a fundraiser for the MS Society. I did it not just to raise funds, but I also did it to raise awareness. And that's one of the reasons I, I chose that extreme element or that highway. And, and I chose the fat bike and I chose winter and was because people with MS relate to that and people that are my potential donors, I'm hoping they'll relate to that and, and donate more money. And I also did it for myself. Um, I love adventure. I love cycling. I love challenging myself. And um, yeah, my takeaway was it was, it was an amazing adventure. Um, I want to do it again. I've got other plans for a few other ones. Um, you know, so I, I probably won't do the Dempster the way I did it before, but um, I'm always up for an adventure. So I'm, I've got a few other things up my sleeve. And I, I like solo biking. I like bike packing. Um, I did a trip here about a month ago, a month and a half ago, uh, down the eastern seaboard from Boston down to Philly. And I, I had the opportunity to do it with a group of friends. And uh, we had a lot of fun. But to be honest, it's just not the same. Um, I think I'm, I'm a little more hooked on solo cycling, um, self, you know, self-sustained cycling. We stayed in hotels and whatnot, which was great because we had a lot of rain. But I, I still, you know, I look back on the Dempster trip. I look back on the, the Wickenburg, Arizona trip, or the I've done a couple of backcountry local trips. I look back, I, I look back on those a lot fonder than I do on the, you know, the group trips and things like that. So. So what is it? You're, you enjoy being in your own head? You enjoy going at your own pace? You know, I, I quite often get asked, like, what, what are you thinking about when you're on these solo trips? And I, I'm much the same way, but I'm curious to know what your your answer is on, on why you like the solo experience. Well, I think you, you, you nailed one element is being um, on my own pace. And so I like to be able to get up when I get up and pack my, my bike boil my water or cook my porridge or whatever I'm doing at my own pace and then and then hit the trail at my own pace. Um, when you add people, you multiply the complicity of it and it just gets a little more difficult. So you're dealing with someone else doesn't want porridge, they're cooking something and they're taking longer or somebody else. You know, there's always issues. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because if you're with the right people, you can have a great time. But um, the other part of it is I, I do like the solitude because I do like to get away from the, you know, the day-to-day that I deal with. So it's a way to, to get out of my own head or to put my <clears throat> work thoughts aside and just think about exercise and nature. And, you know, and, and, and it doesn't matter the time of year. I, I cycle year-round. So. And the, the biggest thing I do is um, in my mind, I... I look ahead you know when i'm planning a trip I, I potentially plan out you know where i'm going and what i'm doing and, and then i think about what are the what's the worst case scenario of what could go wrong and i try and plan for that 
And if I'm on the road, which happened on the Dempster, where, you know, either one day where I ended up not being able to get further, I had to stay in the tractor trailer. I tried numerous times to get through drifts and the wind was blowing so hard. You know, I could have broke down and cried or I could have uh, said, you know, what the hell am I doing here? I could have screamed and pushed the button on my spot and got on the sat phone or whatever. But, you know, I just have this, uh, I don't know what it, what you call it, but uh, I have the ability to to step back and look and say, you know what? This is the way it is right now. This is what you have to deal with. That's the cards you're dealt with. What are you going to do? And I'm really good at processing that. And in that situation, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to that semi-drop. I'll find the keys. If I don't find the keys, I'll set up my tent and I'll just hunker down and wait it out. You know, and There's no sense getting upset or crying or worrying about it because it is what it is. So, um, And that's, that's part of the adventure. That's part of the challenge. And the biggest thing with having a positive outcome is is how you deal with that. And it's how you move forward. So. Well, well said. And I got to ask, because this was the first year I went cold turkey, but uh, do you listen to music or anything like that while you're riding? Yeah, that's actually, I've had a lot of people ask me that. And I do bring my, I've got a couple of little uh, music devices and I do have some charger packs and stuff. So I do have the capability, but to be honest, a lot of the time, like on the Dempster ride, I think the only time I listened to music was at night. I never listened to music when I was riding, and I don't think it was there was any reason for it. I just didn't do it. Um, but I found on this ride down from Boston there last month, I was listening to music quite a bit, and I don't know if it was because I was with a group and I was shutting them out or whatever. But, <laughs> but I do a lot of. <laughs> I hope none of those guys are listening. But I do a lot of riding locally, and um, like when I take my skinny bike out after work or something, I'll always plug the tunes in and and crank it up and but yeah there's no real consistency to, to me listening to music or not but gotcha uh taking a step back for a second i'm curious um you know obviously the the gear for for this kind of uh trip you know the bike and all the small pieces is um you know i imagine there's a bit more thought that goes into it and a bit more variation um you know how, how did the gear hold up um you know what what are some tips you could you could pass along for for someone uh, looking to take on that kind of uh, winter uh, adventure? Well, I'm still not 100% dialed in on my winter travel, and I've actually got another method I'm going to try out here in uh, in January. But this particular trip, I I used a uh, a tent. You know, it was like a pretty solid three season um, for. It was a, but actually it was a two-man tent, and uh, I had a really good sleeping bag. It was like a thousand-dollar sleeping bag I borrowed from my buddy that's um, into uh, extreme backcountry trips, and uh, so I had an amazing sleeping bag. It was like forty below or something. And then I, um, you know, as far as food and whatnot, I had a lot of dehydrated food. I had uh, two stoves just for redundancy. I had a jet boil and. Um, I think I had one other, I can't think of the name of it, but it was a fuel stove. And it, that's the one I ended up using all the time until it actually blew a seal. The jet boil didn't work as good in the really cold temperatures. Um, but as far as food went, I had, you know, lots of snacky stuff and candy, you know, like, um, 
gel, jelly, I don't know what you call them, but, um, and then I had um, dehydrated packages, which I've learned to hate. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot, I couldn't bring water, but I was boiling snow. Every day I'd call it boiling rabbit tracks for snow because there was rabbit tracks everywhere there, or for water. And I had a, like a hydration vest, like a, that you wear for running, and I had that inside my clothes. So I'd fill that every day. And I had a big um, growler. It's like a, a beer growler. It's a thermos. And I had a growler cage in my bike. So um, that was good because that would keep water from freezing for pretty much most of the day. And I rigged my bike with front and rear racks on that trip. So I was riding panniers as opposed to a frame bag and a, you know, a seat bag and a, and a roll on the front. So I went kind of traditional touring with uh, front and rear panniers, and then I could put top loads on both rack. So the bike was pretty heavy. It was over 100 pounds. There was a lot of gear on it. You know, I had cooking gear too, and I actually had an extra pair of boots. Um, so I probably packed more than I needed to. There's one jacket I brought that I never wore, but in hindsight, I, would, I probably wouldn't change that because if I needed it, I needed it. So if I didn't need it, well, I still had it. And uh, you have uh, like bar mitts and, uh, you know, studded tires, that sort of stuff? Yeah, I, I went to um, the bike I had on that trip. I ride Kona all the time. And uh, they were, I think they were 4.7s. And I, ended, I went to studded tires on that trip, particularly for the fact that I was doing the stretch from Anuva to Tuck, which is the ice road. And I'm glad I did because it was, I mean, I trained for that by riding around the uh, skating rink at Jasper Park Lodge, which is Beauvais Lake, or not Beauvais Lake, but Mildred Lake. And they've got an oval there. And I, I rode that numerous times. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of think, why, well, you know, I'm training riding a bike, but I was actually training to stay on the bike on the ice, which is a bit of an art. And I uh, still, I had a few spills. I did get pretty good at it, but it's different when you got a fully loaded bike too. And I did have bar mitts. I have the the 45 North, um, and they're like, it, you know what, amazing. I there was times where I wasn't even wearing gloves inside them, and the majority of the time I was wearing just biking gloves, like summer biking gloves. Hmm, interesting. Well, I, you know, I ask these things because I, I don't have a lot of. Uh winter cycling experience uh personally i have a lot of circulation issues but um one of the one of the routes that uh i'm going to scout for the the guidebook that i'm working on uh for the canadian rockies is uh, going up the icefield parkway uh in the winter so uh you know finding a familiar route and, and kind of doing it in a different way and i'm curious when you when you were doing your training and preparation did you ever look at doing uh you know, riding down to, to, to Banff and back uh, to, to get sort of the gear end of things sorted out? Yeah, I've done that um, a couple of times. Um, once in the winter. And then I've done, um, I did the trip from Fort McMurray to Fort Chip in the winter. And then I've done some local stuff where I'll just go out and back. Um, and that's kind of where I test my gears when I'm closer to home. But um, it's yeah, it's a, it's an intra. It, everything changes in the winter. Um, a lot of I, I know a, a million people that are cyclists, but uh, probably a very small fraction of them would ride a, an overnight trip in the winter, and and everything changes. And you just really 
the cancer risk, you have to be prepared. You have to look at the worst case scenario and you have to make sure. And and then the other thing too is you have to have an out. And the only out in, in the um, riding I do is a spot device. You have to be able to push a button. Um, even then you you have a delayed response if you're quite remote. So I've done some trips like north of Jasper up into the backcountry, um, basically horse trails where um, you know my girlfriend makes me push the button every four hours or every three hours, whatever we predetermine. You know, I told her one day, I says, you know, what happens if for some reason I forget to push the button? Are you going to freak out and (laughs) call a helicopter? (laughs) She goes, no, it just gives me peace of mind. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm on the same boat right now. And uh, one of my last scouts through Fernie, my spot tracker actually fell off the bike and I I didn't realize it. So um, (laughs) there's no contingency plan for that because I I know Sarah, Sarah was... Uh, quite worried for me when she didn't see my my tracker moving for hours and then all of a sudden I called and I was pretty much at the finish so um, I, I think you know as we kind of do more of these things I think a spot is going to be an easy partnership to to, to develop because um, you know there's there's the gear that you like to have and there's the gear that you need to have and for uh, you know the, the the people doing the things that we're doing um, it's it's almost a prerequisite. I, I can't imagine going out into the backcountry or into the extreme elements without um, without that kind of uh, device. So, um, good reminder. I need to reach out to them. Yeah, for um, sure. So, so what, what's what's next up uh, for you? Are you still fundraising? Do you have any other trips on the go? Uh, my fundraising is done for this year for the MS Society per se. Um, that ended um, October thirty first. Um, I've got, I'm planning a winter ride in December, right? Just after Christmas. I'm, I'm actually going to do part of the AR, the Alberta Rockies route and just baby down. I'm, that's actually what I'm going to experiment because I just bought a new baby. Um, the tent thing didn't really work too good in extreme cold temperatures. I got way too much condensation. And so I'm going to try to, I, I bivvied a lot, but not in the winter so much. So I'm going to, and, and the bivvy I had before actually wasn't a very good quality one. I just, I just picked one up that's potentially or supposed to be a really good quality. So I'm going to try that. And I just bought another sleeping bag, which I'm really anxious to try. And, uh, then I'm going to head down to Idaho in uh, January for the go CJ. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, that, that's a race, though, and I, I'm really I'm not a competitive racer. I've done lots of races, but I'm, I'm I call myself a participant, not a contestant. This this is the fat bike pursuit you're talking about. Yeah, the fat pursuits. That's right. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I just posted a video about that the other day. It looks. Uh, I don't. I want. I don't want to say the word fun, but it looks like a lot. It looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. It looks like a lot of something anyways. Um, I, I'm curious though, like, um, uh, you made the comment about condensation in the tent. Usually it's the other way around from, from the, my experience, you know, personally, and just from reading stories that it's actually the, the bivy sacks that the condensation's more of the concern. And that's actually why I've gone more of the tent route. Um, what, what am I missing there? Well, that's, I don't know if there's any, uh, I think it depends on the, the brand or the, whatever the items made out of, cause I've, I've had a couple of bivvies that have been terrible 
and um, their lower end one actually is just like an escape bivy from Seoul. And I mean, I when I went down to Camor when I I, I bivied out at Mosquito Creek, and I, I mean, I was soaked. That thing just it just there was condensation everywhere. So yeah, that wasn't working. But the bivy I bought, uh, their claim to fame is is that it's breathable, waterproof, or basically water resistant, semi waterproof. But it, they swear that it does not produce condensation. So that's why I'm kind of excited to try it. The tent that I took to um, up up north there was a fairly substantial tent. Um, I probably should have taken, I borrowed that again from the same guy I bought the sleeping bag from. It was like a three or a four season tent, fairly heavy duty. I probably should have just taken my little single north face that I've used for years um, because it, I think it would have breathed a lot better. Um, I'm actually gonna try that this winter too, just to see if that, that tent's better. But I met, I met some guys, uh, they were skiing from Whitehorse to Old Crow when I was stranded in Eagle Plains. Um, these two young fellows, one from Germany and one from uh, England. And I, had, I ended up having quite a discussion with them. But they started out on their trip with a tent and they ended up just leaving it. They just said, no, this isn't working because they had the same problem I did. And they would, uh, they would dig a hole in the snow and they'd divvy into that and they'd start a little fire. And that seemed to be working good for them. So, Yeah, winter, winter camping is definitely a, a fine art and, and not to be uh, taken light, lightly. So so kudos to you. And, um, you know, as, as I said at, at your talk at the summit there, um, you know, there's, there, there's people that inspire us to do things and there's people that inspire us not to do things. But um, either way, both tell a really good story. And, um uh, you might fall somewhere right in between uh, on the the do or do not, but uh, uh, you, you definitely had us uh, captivated, and um, <laughs> you had a, our interest peaked at, at KFC. Um, so, thank you very much for uh, for sharing, uh, Greg. And, and um, you know, as a side note, thank you again for coming on as a as a guidebook sponsor. I think we're up to eight or so right now, and you know those. Fun, funds go a long way for you know affording me a bit more opportunity to scout the routes and um, you know buy gear and uh, and things like that. So looking forward to going on on that journey as as, as the chapters start leaking out uh, over the next couple months. And uh, um, as a, another side note, uh, I, I'm curious. You know, there's something about your your family that seems to like the outdoors. I was just at a <laughs> just at a talk for. Um, your brother Kevin at uh, the Banff uh, Mountain Fest there, he was talking about his um, new book, uh, Heart Waters, I believe it's called. And did, That's did, right, yeah. did, did you have any in involvement in that? Uh, my only involvement is I helped him edit it. <laughs> um, he sent me the first draft and I read it through. But no, I, uh, I had no involvement in actually that. My nephew, uh, Kevin's son, Brian, did all the photography and he's an amazing photographer. And Kevin's an amazing writer, so um, they put it together and wrote an amazing book. So the, I guess the obvious next question is, um, you know, you're sponsoring a guidebook. You have a brother that's writing books. Um, you know, you have a lot of interesting stories. Is, is, is the writing an avenue you'd ever think of pursuing as far as uh, telling your story? You know, I've, I've got a blog, so I do, I do write stories, but I'm probably the world's worst blogger. And, you know, I've, I'm just busy. Like I, 
my my day job is extremely time consuming and so I really have failed my blog miserably. Uh, I'm right now. I'm in. I think I'm not even in a Nubic in my blog, <laughs> which was like a year and a half ago or two years ago. Oh. That's how miserable I am. But you know, I've been blogging for quite a few years, and um, I think I've got some stories in there. Um, I'll be honest. I'm inspired by you because I started reading your book, and I remember asking you at the summit. You know. Did the editors take it and rip it to pieces? And and you kind of said no. I, I gave them the the manuscript and and they kind of that's what they printed. So I started reading your book and and it's phenomenal. Like I'm I'm engaged in that book. I'm like living your life when you were 22 years old, which might sound a little creepy, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's 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 amazing. So now I'm actually thinking maybe I could do it. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's 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 not out of the question. It's uh, you know it's a tough thing finding that balance between being the the adventurer and uh, you know being the storyteller and kind of feeding the machine to some regard. But uh, you know I, I will say uh, you know I'd be happy to uh, you know when you when you do the the race down in Idaho, let's let's connect again and uh, do an, another podcast and uh, save you save you the time and and having to write something because I'd love to. To hear that story, sure. there's, there's one thing to, to see the written word, and then there's the, you know, uh, as I'm sure we can all appreciate hearing hearing it right from uh, the person's mouth. So, yeah, I would love to do that if you're you're into that. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Cool, Greg. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the, the time, and, uh, you know, I know you're a busy guy, full-time firefighter and all the rest, and um, the journey only has just begun, uh, you know, on the bikepacking Canada frontier and uh, and learning more about you and working on the guidebook and uh, you know looking looking forward to seeing where this goes. So uh, thank yeah, you very uh, much for uh, it, coming on tonight. I wanted to, the summit was amazing. Um, kudos on you and and Ryan and Josh and and Neil and all the folks that put that together. It was amazing. It was a special special couple of days. Um, I one thing I do want to say is you know anybody can ride a bike. Anybody can have an adventure. There's different levels. I'm not going to suggest that anybody should just go ride the dumpster in the winter, but you know what? You can just get out your back door and you can ride, you know, 20 kilometers from your house and set up your tent. You know, an adventure is is kind of relative to whatever you want to do. And I think I just encourage everybody to get out there and do it. Wow, those are those are great last words. And uh, my my add-on to that was probably one of my favorite experiences from this year. You know, I, I did some big rides. The you know the AR seven hundred and the um, uh, yeah, you rocked that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the 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 you know the Arizona Trail and um, you know probably what, yeah my favorite story was we did an overnighter uh, from Canmore out to Bolton Creek and back with a group of ten people that had never done that sort of thing before and half of them showed up with. Uh, there's stuff uh stuffed in uh uh garbage bags uh just like zip tied to their bikes and um you know that's that's that that's story awesome. that's that story in a nutshell and it's um yeah you know it's it's just having a, a mindset that's open to adventure that's i think that's what we love about bikepacking so um yes great way to end thank you greg and uh we'll we'll be in touch um after your uh idaho adventure okay right on thanks thanks cool. ryan Cool. Have a good night, Greg. Yeah, stay safe. Okay, bye now. Yeah.